In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. This is a safe space. This is a place for the open exchange of ideas. Ideas can be controversial. Ideas may offend you. But do ideas harm you? On today's podcast, we discuss how safe spaces and trigger warnings limit the exposure to new ideas. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. I have breaking news. Oh, what is that? Our next episode will be a professional discussion with a psychiatrist who has opposing views to the Radically Genuine podcast and my professional Twitter account, some of the things that I'm putting out there. And he wants to have that professional debate, quote unquote debate. Yeah, that's exciting. So I do think our listening audience is going to enjoy that one because we support the open exchange of ideas and it is only through that open exchange of ideas that we could advance this profession we can advance science and we stand for that and obviously i'm looking forward to the opportunity certainly going to give our guest ample opportunity to prove his points to discuss them in detail i think it's an important discussion especially when we talk about safety and efficacy of psychiatric drugs, where we talk about diagnoses, and as well as we talk about what's most important, that is, you know, evolution and creating a life of value and purpose, even with the suffering and the struggle that exists. Fellas, I saw the best that this country has to offer as far as youth this past weekend. And I'm going to tell you I'm a little bit biased because this is kind of the warrior class that I think um, is very special in the United States. Athletes, especially athletes in certain sports, such a commitment. I was at the state wrestling championships and I have so much respect for the sport of wrestling and the wrestlers themselves because it is an absolute mental and physical grind, that sport. You know, Sean, you and I and Kelly, we played team sports. Team Mm -hmm. sports are fun. Team sports are really, really fun, and they're, they're games. When it comes to wrestling, it's a combat sport. I mean, it's a fight. And what it takes to, be, to have success, mental, physical fortitude, and advanced technique under some of the most challenging and difficult circumstances. There's nowhere to hide when you're on the mat. No, there's no, no taking a day off or, or coasting and taking a breather in the middle of a match. Because yeah, the amount, how hard you work is yeah. how hard it's going to be on that mat. Yep, Absolutely. And especially the state of Pennsylvania, which is probably the largest, most talented wrestling state in the United States. And we're in a hotbed here in the Lehigh Valley to watch that high level wrestling. Uh, It was so enjoyable, but there's so much media there and attention. And I got exposed to some of these kids who were having success being interviewed and just talking about the process. And there's just so much about what they've learned through adversity, through the sport of wrestling, that has created a wisdom, a strength, and a resilience that is unmatched to, I think, that age group. I'm so impressed with some of these young men. 
I'd never had that that wisdom to be able to articulate some of the things that they articulated mm-hmm. at that age. I remember you at that age. You were far from it. Far from it. I mean, there there's a maturity, right? Yeah, there there was a maturity that that you go through, and they and they talk about the process and the grind and how much is learned from it. And I walk out of that weekend with a kind of a renewed sense of hope and optimism for a lot of the things I believe in and the things that we talk about. Because in in our society, we are certainly facing what I believe to be a toxic ideology. A toxic ideology around ideas that are certainly generated in the American institutions of higher education. And I think they're toxic and poisonous ideas. And we're going to get into a discussion about them today. I mean, there's three of them. There's two of them that really stand out for me. Another one's a little bit more complicated and nuanced. But the idea of safe spaces, trigger warnings, and trying to attempt to create this this safety, which ultimately turns out to be like the censoring of content and ideas due to the emotional fragility of developing young adults. And so we can get into what is safe spaces. We can get into trigger warnings. And there's other concepts like microaggressions. And it's kind of impact on a, a divisive culture that is certainly present. But we also always have to tie this into, you know, creating mental well-being and mental health and, and resilience. Because I do believe a lot of these ideas, they're so toxic, they undermine the resilience and the personal strength of the individual. And they create relationships that people have towards others and to themselves that in the long run ultimately is going to undermine their ability to adapt and cope with what is a harsh and difficult competitive and challenging world of diversity when it comes to safe spaces in preparation from this what did you identify as a clear definition for it well let's just start with the oxford university dictionary definition because i know where you're going with this because i if you watch that debate that I sent you guys, I, I did, and um, and from there it stemmed into a lot of other searches and, and readings. So uh, why don't you start with the definition? Because I, I think this is one of the things that really confuses the hell out of people, and it confused me. So go for it. Safe spaces are a quote unquote a place or environment in which a person or category of people can feel confident they will not be exposed to discrimination, criticism harassment, or any other emotional or physical harm. Mm-hmm. And you can see by the words or the languages the problem it creates. Because if you said that a safe space is a place or environment which a person or category of people can feel confident they will not be exposed to discrimination or harassment mm-hmm. or physical harm, mm-hmm. you'd say that they would have those protections under the law. And that is afforded to them under the protections of the law, and no one would ever debate that. But you you add in two other words, and this is where it creates the problem. Confident they will not be exposed to criticism. Yep. And then emotional harm. Yep. And so those two words, by adding it in there, especially it becomes problematic when we're talking about a place of higher education where the open exchange of ideas and exposure to diversity, one would think is part of a necessary educational process for us to grow. And so what might be 
emotionally harmful for me might not be emotionally harmful for you. I don't even know what that actually actually means, emotionally harmful. Because if I'm not afforded the protections under the law to be able to say whatever I want to you in a defamatory or discriminatory way. Mm-hmm. So it starts blending itself into the fact that certain ideas are harmful. If you're offended, it can be harmful. If you're quote unquote emotionally triggered, which just basically means you have an emotion that a person then can deem harmful. And what are the after effects, consequences of, of such an ideology? Well, it means people have to censor their own ideas and words now become violence. And it creates an environment where you cannot have the open discussion of things, of topics that are very necessary for critical thinkers to evolve with. I've always looked at this idea of safetyism as a way to protect people from ever experiencing discomfort or anxiety. And I've always thought that that was absolutely the opposite of what we should be doing. Because as we all know, in our older age, you experience a ton of discomfort. In fact, how you how you then react to a setback or something that you, you know, maybe you were somebody called you a name or did something, how you react to that is part of being resilient. And what I am seeing on on my end at the public school level is we're trying to protect people from ever experiencing anything that causes discomfort. And I just think it has a very negative effect and outcome as people get older. They need to be able to process this and experience it, even the negative emotions of anxiety and how they go through it. But that's just my point of view on this. Yeah, the origins of safe space was just basically speak your mind without fear of retaliation or attack. And isn't that essentially what radically genuine is? Radically genuine is, you know, what we do here. We get in a room, we have an open conversation, a dialogue. I may say things that differ from your point of view. Kelly may say something that differs from your point of view, but the collective ideas is where we ultimately start evolving the conversation and sometimes go in a direction that we didn't anticipate, but maybe come up with some interesting thoughts and some interesting discussion points that could influence somebody either way. That's what progress is. That's where innovation comes from. But when you all of a sudden throw in the word criticism and emotional harm, that's where it gets very murky. I almost feel like the idea of a safe space got hijacked over the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah, I I think so. When you talk about the original origins, they were talking about where there are differences in a power structure. So let's imagine that you are a CEO of a major company. Yep. And you are trying to advance your, your company by receiving feedback from your employees. So if a CEO or somebody of any type of power within that organization doesn't create an environment where people can freely and openly be critical of the business structure and the work that they're doing, how are you going to grow your business, right? How are you going to advance and create an opportunity for your employees to want to stay and and continue to work? And so I think you acknowledge that in, in, in a hierarchy where there's power differentials, you have to understand that someone is less likely to communicate their point of view if they believe they're going to be retaliated against, potentially even lose their job. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the evolution of this safe space. But yes, it got hijacked in from the American left and in ideas in our higher institution where a safe place means you are harmed, 
You are free from ideas that differ from yours and you can actually, and you can be segregated. You can segregate you from somebody who you believe is different in order to be in a quote unquote safe space. The problem with all this is what does that mean? Sean, what does safe mean? It, I don't think it was the intention was ever for somebody not to be offended. No, it was, a, it was more about freedom of speech initially. And just to go back to what you just talked about, the corporate environment, I think the origins of how that evolved, um, the, the story behind it is really something that needs to be taken into consideration. The psychologist that actually kind of came up with safe space for a corporate environment um, was a Jewish academic that left Europe after the rise of Nazism. He came to the United States and he saw you know, people being afraid to speak up against somebody that was doing something wrong and almost took that social psychology approach into the corporate world. And just his belief was that honesty and change would only occur if people could be frank and challenge others in an environment of psychological safety. So that means just having, you know, strong opinionated conversations in a respectable way for the greater good. But when you start taking that word of, of safety that's open to interpretation. Like, who's to say, um, if I'm a minority in a situation, if it comes to politics, and I start speaking out against something that maybe I don't agree with, but the, the majority of the class, and I'm going to use a university as an example here, if the majority of the class disagrees with me, aren't I the one that is fearful then? Like, aren't, shouldn't I be the one who uh, could potentially be attacked physically or emotionally in that situation. So why wouldn't I be able to have my point of view come across if I'm the minority? No, it's a really good point. And I think one of the things that's really important is speaks to Kelly's point is, you know, protection, the idea that a person needs protection from another person's ideas assumes that the individual is emotionally and psychologically fragile and they would not be able to tolerate that discomfort. That's different from creating an environment of respect because I do believe a professor or a teacher is responsible for creating an environment in which people can learn to communicate those ideas respectfully. Now, we all know that some people psychologically are people pleasers or have a hard time being disagreed with. And some people just when they're in some sort of combative kind of discussion, that's of maybe high emotion is generated, they come to tears or they become upset about it. The question is, is that another person's responsibility because that's how they receive that information? Or does that individual own their own responsibility to learn how to cope in that environment, to be able to regulate that emotion, tolerate it, and be able to then communicate back in a way that another person can understand their point of view. That's how important communication is and rhetoric, your ability to be able to take these complex ideas that generate strong emotion and communicate it in a way that a person may be able to understand your point of view and even shift their thinking, right? Because that that's intellectual growth, that you have a willingness to put your ideas out there for scrutiny because you win either way. If you're scrutinized and you hear the other person's point of view and it further strengthens your resolve and your, your beliefs about that, well, that's a good thing. If you learn something new and you change your mind, 
that's good too. To me, it's a no-lose situation. But American universities, colleges have become such a breeding ground for ideological warfare that those that, that safety in that environment no longer exists. Respectful discourse. And so these are ideas that are being twisted around ideas of emotional fragility when I think that their ultimate purpose for good or the intention around it is to create an environment of respectful discourse. I mean, part of that has to do with the fact that if I'm a professor and I have a certain ideology and I'm teaching and I've published books and I've gotten all this notoriety for ideologies that I've put out there, now I'm in front of a class and I teach that and I've got half the student population raising their hands and disagreeing with me. That disagreement is good. In other words, I can learn from it. But I'm seeing more and more, no, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna let you talk. In fact, I'm gonna grade your papers in a certain way because you're not agreeing with me. You must agree with my ideology or I will fail you. Yeah. That's where I think secondary education has gone and it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. And I'm hearing the same thing from, from current students about uh, that equity, diversity, and inclusion. That if you have an alternative viewpoint to equity, diversity, and inclusion, that uh, you're automatically then labeled in terms of having racist ideology, which is certainly problematic because that's that ad hominem ad attack. Hominem attack yeah. you're, not, you're no longer attacking the idea. You're, you're no longer trying to, to generate an opportunity for fruitful discussion. You're, you're labeling the person and you're dehumanizing them. And... That's dangerous, and that's what we're that's what we're seeing in the American campuses, and I think that's why we're starting to see, uh, you know, a, a culture and a generation of of people who certainly are not demonstrating the emotional stability, resilience, and strength that is required to be able to function well in a world that is so competitive and challenging. I mean, the world. Is, is simply not a safe space, right? And, and don't American universities, especially with the price tag that exists, don't they have a responsibility to be able to create environments that can prepare their students to be able to survive in that world? I, I believe so, yeah. I mean, you're basically taking somebody from a child into adulthood. These are the years when that critical thought, that individualism is established, you start defining who you are in those four years of being at a university. And then you continue to evolve over the next 10, 15 years. Who you are in your 40s is not going to be who you are in your 20s. And being open to ideas and being able to have a debate and feel strongly about the things you believe in and structure an argument in a way that is respectful is, is something that has to learn how to be done. It's not something that's in you. Well, there's also a social order of things, right? Like, so how do we learn? Maybe I say something that is ignorant. Yeah. And maybe we have, we should have the freedom to say some ignorant things. And then the reaction I get from my environment is my opportunity to say, hmm, maybe the way that I said that or the way that I'm thinking about that is harmful or hurtful to others. And maybe I need to think about things. I 
I have examples of that in my past that when I think about them to this day, I still get that little bit of back sweat, you know, (laughs) embarrassed at something that I said, or I thought I was just, I, I, I thought I had a close enough relationship with somebody where I said something and they interpreted it in a entirely different way and I was shocked by it and then realized that boy that was just me being completely ignorant but that's life yeah right like isn't that how we learn there is a social order of things um you know what did Mike Tyson used to say um Mike Tyson, <laughs> the philosopher Mike Tyson you know to say everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face yeah. right yeah that was his boxing analogy but life is like that right everyone has an idea or a plan of how things should be or how you think it's going to be and then life has a way of smacking you right across the face and but then you learn right then it's an opportunity to take a step back we all have to look in the mirror sometimes we have to look in the mirror and say are we on the right path you can hear my voice from screaming from wrestling these past i watched three weekends i was watching online i heard you i'm sure you did <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you what i aged Five years and three weeks. <laughs> These past three weeks, I think I've aged five weeks. You look five, five years. <laughs> I think my beard is gray, grayer. I, I think I just feel like run down. I got to get my life together. I think I'm thinking about starting at 75. Oh, there we go. There we go. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding, ding. There's the ding, trend. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> Work it in organically. Um, so we understand that this open exchange of ideas is so critically important. If not on our universities, then where? You know, even after the university level, sometimes people just don't go to school. They don't go to college. Where are the places where these open exchange of ideas can happen in a way that people should expect them and anticipate them? Twitter, of course. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I was basically what I say. Like, that's our new, our new town square is like social media. But this is a place where you can no longer, you can't do that. I mean, you get attacked. Yeah. Do, do you believe that college is now a worthy investment? Depends. I think it depends on what you're going to go for, specifically what you're going to go for. Otherwise, yeah, you're kind of throwing your money away. A lot of people that go in for, you know, engineering, for example, maybe medicine, specific things where you're passionate about, you get that four-year degree, you go on to grad school, it's going to benefit you. But the vast majority of our majors right now are are not that. And when you go and sit there, you are literally just being indoctrinated into an ideology forcibly, like literally repetition, repetition. And then you come out with all this kind of knowledge, you got your degree, and then you go for a job and you realize you don't have the skill sets to actually, which is resiliency, which is the ability to take criticism, right? That And and, and generate ideas. Those are the things that are going to get you success along with hard work. But that's not what I'm I'm seeing on my end from universities. I I never went and got my MBA. It was something I thought about for a very brief moment in time. And then I just looked at the cost of it and just realized it wasn't going to pay out. But I had a discussion with somebody and I I basically positioned it the same way to him. I was like, what are you, what are you getting your MBA for? Why are you spending that money? What's, are you learning anything new? And he, and the way he kind of came back at me was, you know what? It's not, the learning that I'm getting, it's the opportunity to engage with others that are driven professionally in a way that either they want to start their own business or they have some ideas and they're looking to align with others that are similar. So it was the networking. networking. It was the networking. So, of and, and this is where I believe that the business degree is a scam, mm-hmm. right? Because there are other ways to be able to network 
bring like-minded people together. This is the idea that human beings will naturally find quote-unquote safe spaces, right? So safe spaces are where you can put like-minded people together with the free exchange of ideas and networking together in order to achieve a common goal, right? So that happens naturally. You don't need an institution or authoritarian control or rules or somebody else in a position of authority to be able to tell you how to do that. And business is best learned through direct experience, in my opinion. Okay, you, now, you just brought up the safe space thing, and I just want to make sure people are clear, they understand a safe place is where you can have an open exchange of ideas. It's not a white padded room where you're protected from anything that could be harmful to you. But they, <laughs> they have that on, on campuses, right? Like there are, there are op- campus situations where a, a conservative speaker would be invited onto campus, and then they would create a safe space for other people to go afterwards as if they, the ideas that were generated in that meeting were so emotionally provocative that the person wouldn't be able to handle it and they can go hug it out in another room and hold hands and drink tea or you know some other th- idea that somebody is so emotionally fragile that they couldn't tolerate that that alternative viewpoint. You said drink tea. That's a microaggression. That's based on some bias that you have about people that are very sensitive. I'm drinking tea right now, by the way. Yeah, but you have whiskey in that. You added it to your tea. I saw you. What? Don't you add? What do you add? Put milk in your? Because you're Irish. <laughs> <laughs> that's another microaggression. <laughs> yeah, let's let's transition to microaggressions. Should we? Oh, all right. okay. that's a good segue. So, <laughs> all right. Th- now. Again, there's when we talk about this, I think we're talking about things that have gray area and on a continuum and we can be reasonable. So just the definition of microaggressions are a statement, action, or incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. A microaggression is a term used for commonplace, uh, daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental slights whether intentional or unintentional, that communicates hostile, derogatory, or negative attitudes towards stigmatized or culturally marginalized groups. Now, the problem with this is the vast and wide opportunity for a individual's personal viewpoint or beliefs to be um, projected onto somebody else right because you're talking about something that's a microaggression so it's subtle Mm -hmm. so a microaggression could be something that's unintentional however there is a belief system that underlies it so it's 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 a pre-conscious or unconscious bias that would influence that behavior. An implicit bias. Is Im- implicit bias is the better word, right? Yeah, you know, for a blue-collar person who grew up in, uh, you know, steel country of Pennsylvania, you talk pretty well about this stuff. I do. Thank you. That's a microaggression, right? <laughs> but that that's even, that's a little bit more overt. That's what they are. They're like they're casual, right? And they maybe well, sometimes it, come up in, in everyday life, and usually it's it's against. That's is, like another race. Is, isn't microaggression? I just understand it's it's stereotypes. It's well, no, no, it's not. So yeah, let me take a step or here. attitudes towards those he, stereotypes. He just, attitudes towards stereotypes. Yeah. yeah. Well, he just he just stated a stereotype, so it makes us think it's that. I, I'm not. I think it's a lot more nuanced and complicated. So let me give you an example. Okay. Let's say 
Um, you go to a restaurant mm-hmm. and sitting next to you, you arrived around the same time. Sitting next to you is a minority group at the table mm-hmm. and you're of the majority culture mm-hmm. and your server is of the majority culture. The server comes, he has an op, he or she has an opportunity to serve either tables first or gets the, um, get the order first. And that person goes and engages the group of the majority culture first. The assumption could be that that is a microaggression. That is a implicit bias that impacted who got the preferential behavior. Now you can see that my concern with that is it's, it's, it's first it's subtle. Uh, it is assuming intent. And I'll tell you what, I mean, who cares in those situations, right? It's not that big of a deal, right? And so we often talk about things in here about you know, a, where our attention goes, our energy flows. Mm-hmm. So if your attention is on perceived slights, small slights, imagine how that affects your quality of your, of your life. You develop an attentional bias to focusing on those slights, and then you assume that there's an intention around it that is discriminatory or derogatory. And that in itself is problematic. Now, that's different from overt acts of discrimination or racism, like you know, serving one group at the expense of another, like segregation and shutting out opportunities for another group of a minority status. These are subtle. They're overt. They're, they're subtle and they're, they're not so obvious. So it lends itself to, to, to generally throw out terms like anyone is racist um, based, on your, based on your skin color. If you're in the majority group, you have this implicit bias of racism that exists and you act it out in subtle ways. Even if, you in, even if you're not in a power group, you could be of impoverished state, right? You can be, you can be a white male, but you can be jobless. You can be impoverished. The assumption is because you are of the majority status that you're in a in a power position, even if that minority person is somebody of great financial privilege. Those ideas to me are developed and there's a breeding ground for that on the American left in academic institutions. And that's where I have a hard time believing that that advances the conversation. And I think as we see in American culture, it creates more divisiveness because you could be of pure heart Mm -hmm. you can be a good person you can be open and aware to the differences that exist within cultures and groups you can be sensitive to the history of groups that have been marginalized but just simply by the color of your skin you have unintentional implicit biases and power in the american culture now if you kind of go underneath and look at kind of the intellectual literature that drives that, that's more Marxism, right? That's a political ideology that generally suggests that people's position in life is determined by power status and that a a political ideology that levels the playing field is to really take the government and to spread that, uh, spread wealth out amongst the population as a means of kind of leveling that playing field. 
When it comes to like a microaggression, let's use gender as an example. Wouldn't you want to be made aware if you've done something that was unintentional or casual in a way that made a female associate feel inferior? Because I'm trying to think of a way to overcome if, if you have done something that could be interpreted that way to become more conscious of it in the future. Isn't that part of, of learning? And you would want somebody to approach you in a way respectfully and say, hey, listen, what you did right now, that, that's the type of environment where progress happens, right? Can't disagree with that point. So why do people, why do people feel, why do they get to a breaking point? When it comes to a microaggression, is it the repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated? I think it, it comes out of the African-American community um, for the most part, as far as a marginalized uh, group in the United States. Uh, I'm using. And, and so there's there, there are generational over racism yeah. that 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 occurs. And um, I think if somebody was here and we can't speak for. You know, we can't speak for others, but there is a cumulative, they believe to be a, a cum- cumulative effect of microaggressions that, you know, over the course of one's lifetime are, does create that breaking point. Yeah. But what's your, what's your point? At, at what point did microaggressions become so mainstream now that it's, it's something that we're actually talking about because biases have always exist like because it was a term that was coined and then put out there and then secondary institutions began teaching it the the problem became a label the problem with microaggressions is it doesn't have a whole lot of strong scientific standing Mm -hmm. the act the the idea that you actually do have an implicit bias and then you act it out hasn't really been able to stand the test of time so for example let's say that person comes and takes the order of the 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 majority group first. That doesn't necessarily mean that that was an implicit bias related to race. So, all right, let's take the idea of safe spaces and microaggressions. If by creating an environment where you can no longer have a free exchange of ideas, then you're not being exposed to others that may have different point of views than you, so you can't evolve and learn. Does it thus create more microaggressions? Are they called... does one cause the other to happen more often? So, or in, be interpreted that way. So, you're saying there's some cyclical process that would exist that without the exposure to people of differing views, including different cultures and groups, yes, then it creates more of a, a, a division because we don't have this open dialogue and exchange of ideas to understand each and other and exposure to, to I, others. I yes. totally agree. I think you know it's about it's about exposure. And it's about relationships. In relationships, we we learn from each other. And so it goes back to my earlier point. Like there's a natural safe space that, that human beings choose. You choose people that are that are like-minded to you and that you're comfortable in within that community, right? Like you, you, you spend time with people you like. And if you don't like them, you don't spend time with them. That's just natural, right? And so... I was listening to some debates on the value of safe spaces and one of the point of views was in a college campus that becomes your home. So you're there 24 hours and therefore administration has a responsibility to be able to create environments for people in which there is perceived safety. And that's just 
that's just a, a, a safe space. And my, my automatic thought is, why does a college administrator have to create that? Why can't people in themselves create that within your friend group, right? Like if your home is a safe space for you, and it's not always because even in your home, you have differing opinions and emotions get provoked and, and so forth, is why does there need to be some person in, in position of authority that has to set that rule? Yeah, that's a weak argument because someone can easily say, well, my home is in my community and I spend a lot of time out in my community and I need a place where I can feel safe and I no longer feel safe because your ideas are threatening to me. Right. And, and my greater point is why, why so emotionally fragile and weak? Like, why do we have to treat everybody in this kind of culture, in this toxic ideology, as if the other person is so fragile? And if we tie it into, if, if we're tying it into changes we have to make in American society, we have to shift that idea. It's, it's created an entire mental health industry of people emotionally fragile and have a difficult time adapting and adjusting to the challenges that life is going to bring because life is certainly not a safe space. And that doesn't take away from the fact that you have compassion because any change is going to be driven by people, by individuals. It's not going to be, in my opinion, uh, changed by institutions. Institutions are what become corrupt because there is a power structure and there is a financial component that exists within institutions. It's grassroots individual-based change that occurs. And that's why the United States, as a, as a system, I do not necessarily, I do not, um, when I look about the history of the, the United States, the system has allowed for progress. Right? Slavery existed before the United States was ever formed as, an, as, a, as a country. Discrimination, violence, this is a human being problem, not a, not a governmental system problem. At least in the United States, there was a, a degree of freedom that allowed for people to fight against these ideas. There was a war against slavery. We fought for civil rights, that's an in, that is that occurs within an inst, within a, a a system of government that allows for that freedom. Mm -hmm. So I don't look back and believe that progress for us as a people is tearing down the institution or of of the United States or figures who who were leaders at a particular time. I look at it greater from okay. What does freedom allow to have happen? It, has, it allows for the, for the exchange of ideas without uh, political recourse, control, or imprisonment. Right? The fact that we can get on the air and have this free exchange of ideas is because of a free society. And so it, it becomes a very slippery slope when you look to try to manage, control, or censor free ideas because and then you're seeing this in, in certain co in college campuses i don't know if you were aware of how stanford is trying to ban certain words because of their connotation to me that is a slippery slope so if we take a step back we can see that everyone in the united states is on this pathway of acknowledging diversity as being great and good which it's always been but diversity of ideas as being bad in other words almost like creating an us versus them. 
control the ideology, control the narrative that goes out there. And perhaps that's what the whole premise of safe spaces and microaggressions and all that is, is just to control the ideas. We all need to believe in one thing and one thing only, but we need to believe in, in diversity. It's, it seems paradoxical, oftentimes odd to me. Well, I, I think one of the things in a great society is that there's a, there are natural rewards for outcome. You know, Sean and I have talked about this within the business of mental health, that if you're going to progress, to be able to create environments and science and therapies and treatments for an improved quality of life, the financial gain or the financial reward should be somehow tied to the outcome, right? So I think there's, there's a difference for me. There should be a quality of opportunity. There is not a quality of outcome, right? Everyone should be provided the opportunity to achieve. But to achieve should be based on your own hard work, your own willingness, your talent, your innovation, Personal your, your risk-taking, so you're rewarded for outcome. You're not handed anything in, in this life. And supply and demand. I mean, the economics of supply and demand to me are, are one of the, the big drivers of how you establish value to anything. And, that, and that's a free market, mm -hmm. right? And so it, a college campus should also include somewhat degree of a free market of exchange of ideas with the strongest of ideas somehow surviving that environment. That's why, I, you know, there's that old saying, you know, I, I teach because I, I can't do or something like that. You know, you know what that is? Kelly does. Kelly. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those teachers. Can't do much, but I can teach. Those, those who can't do, teach. Okay. Yeah. So in the college environment, there's tenure, which is an idea in itself that I think is problematic. Um, so the tenure idea is basically if you've worked there a certain amount of time and you've been able to, you know, contribute to that community or the literature, you basically got a job for life, right? And that flies in the face to me of, um, about rewarding, you know, outcome. You know, we, we should be creating environments where those who achieve the most flourish. And that's why I love sports. That's why I walk away from this wrestling tournament. And I feel like that's a culture or a community that, um, that I think prepares young people for the challenges that life brings. Because there, there are certain things, there are certain lessons that, that are learned. Uh, you kind of get what you earn, right? Um, if, you, if you lose, if you struggle, you know, blaming on somebody else, not a lot of value in that. Blaming it on a ref. You know, it's just you and another person. You can't blame it on a teammate. It's a sport where bias doesn't come into play. The coach's son is not going to be a state champion. The one who's the best is the, the one who's going to win. And that doesn't happen in many other structures, you know? Yeah, you can go, uh, you can try to make the, you know, the basketball team, and there's a lot of subjectivity in mm -hmm. that to determine who's, who's the starting five, who makes the team, right? In wrestling, you put two kids on the mat, and you wrestle off. <laughs> and the person who wins is in the lineup and the person who loses shouldn't be in the lineup. Yeah. It's, it's fairly simple. And, uh, you know, I know life isn't always like that because 
of a lot of other factors or subjectivity that certainly exists even in the workplace and there's nepotism and other things but uh you know spoiler. nepotism what's that <laughs> <laughs> a sport like wrestling you know is that certainly sets you up for for life and and there's been nepotism for <laughs> well it's that i mean it exists right but um and i'm joking but i'm i'm not always certain that that's necessarily a negative thing either because the person who took the risk to maybe start a business or do other things has a right to be able to hand that over to their own family members. Now that family member can drive that into the ground. You know, the person who does provide that to their kid has a responsibility to train them or to learn the business or do other things. Yeah. Nepotism is also relationships. So it's not always blood. Right. That's true. Um, I want to bring up this idea of freedom of speech versus freedom not to listen. All right, you brought it up. I mean, like there's speech that you hate and then there's hate speech kind of thing? Yes. Yeah. So what, what, let's talk about freedom not to listen. What is that? What right does somebody have to not hear something that is a hate speech and how to approach it? Well, that's the one freedom we all have. Like you can you can remove yourself from a situation. Mm -hmm. You can choose not to listen to somebody to something that somebody says. That's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. But the environment right now in universities is more focused on the freedom not to listen. They're putting an environment that is putting the structure to protect you in advance from ever hearing anything. Canceling any. Sure. Anything yeah. that comes on campus, you've, you've, this happens all the time. Somebody is, you know, booked to speak at a campus that is going to bring ID, ideas that go against, you know, or that are, that are, are, this is where microaggressions and things like that come in, safe spaces. Mm-hmm. Oh, this, you can't listen to this person because they're going to say things that you don't want to hear and we're not going to allow you to hear them. Yeah. So we're just simply going to cancel them or you're not allowed to go. Before the person's even said anything. Correct. Yeah, that's not... That's not learning. That's not education. No. That's a, um, I mean, that's a brainwashing camp, right? You're, you're entering into more of a cult-like environment at that point. Mm-hmm. Protecting kids from uncomfortable ideas is probably the worst thing that we're doing right now. Well, let's transition to trigger warning then. Well, that's right? what that's it is. That's another thing that we, we haven't identified here is the, the philosophy around a trigger warning. So for people who don't know what a trigger warning is, it's a statement at the beginning of, it could be a piece of writing or a start of a film or even a discussion, warning people that they may find the content very upsetting, especially if they've experienced something similar. I think what stands out would be when you're discussing things in in. Things that are trauma related, trauma related. Mm -hmm. Um, And that could be like a sexual assault or a rape. It could be even an abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be murder. And so the idea would be that it would be too emotionally upsetting for someone who may have been exposed to such a thing to be exposed, to be able to to be around the discussion. And that it's like preparing them for as if the preparation then gets them, they can choose to leave or walk out which they could do anyway, even when they're exposed to it, or they can somehow find some emotional readiness. Now, the kind of 
literature around this suggests that it's not helpful, it's harmful. And there's a couple things that really, really stand out. So we're a trauma center, and one, one of the things we do is we actually do um, help people with therapies for post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is a con- major contributor to post-traumatic st- stress is the avoidance of stimuli that reminds them of the trauma. So the avoidance of the stimuli that reminds them of the trauma actually contributes to post-traumatic stress conditions because you don't allow yourself to be exposed to and then tolerate those emotions, which is necessary for recovery. So giving somebody a a trigger warning is almost kind of maintaining these ideas that a person is emotionally unstable or fragile to anything that is a reminder of the event. At its worst, what it's done in American culture is this create, it has created an environment where when we talk about the, the rewarding of outcome, it's created and stimulated an environment that unfortunately some people actually want to identify with a victim status or minority status in order to be able to achieve some sort of benefit within a, a culture or community. Not, so, not that much different from identifying with mental illness diagnoses. So if you, are, if you are identifying as a minority or oppressed or disability status, then you can achieve some sort of benefit within that specific culture. That could be removing yourself from a, a situation. It could be getting special attention. It could be also um, achieving some sort of power within that group. The, the labeling of calling it a trigger is what you have a problem with, right? Because could there, are there appropriate versions of like content warnings? For example, movies and television ratings. So when you're talking about um, ex- exposed, and this is where we have a lot of contradictions, right? I don't believe children should be exposed to pornography. Mm-hmm. And I do think parents and adults have a responsibility to protect children from content that is they ha- they aren't developmentally ready for um, so I, I do believe if that is a, an example of a trigger warning which i don't think it is i'm, I'm, um, I'm i called it a content warning but somebody is, uses the word trigger warning because there's content within a discussion that somebody could have an episode no, I, yeah, I, I certainly oppose that on every level. A trigger warning. Yes. I yeah. think it breeds a fear of discomfort. You're teaching people not to never, ever, ever experience discomfort like when you, when you pose that. And I think that that can be debilitating to a person. You shared um, that research study. The, I don't have it in front of me right now, but what I remember is that a, a trigger warning, it was only like 6% of the time somebody actually avoided it. Uh, so it's like a very small percentage. And those it caused more problems than it did good because it amped up somebody's anxiety the entire time in anticipation of something happening. And often it didn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like watching a horror movie and it's always like someone's washing their face in front of a mirror and you know, they're going to close that uh, medicine cabinet and there's going to be somebody standing behind and they never happens. You just, you're constantly on edge waiting for something to happen and it doesn't happen. It, it simply goes back to something that we started the conversation with, which is it does assume that the individual is emotionally and psychologically fragile and unable to tolerate Isn't that, that discomfort. Insulting? 
In my opinion, it is. Yeah. But it goes, it goes back to what are you going to shape and, and reward in society? So instead of calling something a trigger warning, wouldn't it be more appropriate just to have content? So let's use our podcast as an example. If we're talking about something sexual in nature, sometimes parents listen to a podcast in the car and there could be children in the back. So we're, remember, we're talking about protection of, of children. That's different from the whole ideas around trigger warnings. That's adults. Yeah. And, and it's adults in higher education, and it's a trigger warning for a conversation. I just wanted to distinguish. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a little bit different. But, you know, it's, there's, we have free access to pornography in this country. You know, you know, Wait, what? We, we, we give, <laughs> we give you know, we give 13-year-olds free access, 12-year-olds to smartphones. And that's a conversation that we don't have enough. I, that's not a trigger warning, but that's protection measure, measures around things that are inappropriate for children and can have a negative influence on them. So why, why, do, why do people feel so unsafe? Part of this comes from just the subjective nature of people and their beliefs. If I'm a college professor and I have convinced myself that this is dangerous to all people. So what I'm about to teach you, right? I, I, I start off the class. This may make some of you uncomfortable. You're assuming because of your own belief or your own discomfort of it that everyone else is going to feel it. So we're just not going to teach it. Or if I do teach it, I'm going to forewarn you that this is dangerous material. And I, th I just think that that is wrong. I don't agree with it. You are teaching people to fear any knowledge that comes into their minds that goes against, you know, what, what the, what the, what the professor or, or a teacher is trying to say. It's, it, it, it just literally completely obliterates critical thought. Are we letting the vocal minority influence us to think that this is a significant problem on campuses or is the majority of students blowing this off and saying this is a bunch of crap. I would hope that the majority of students are blowing it off and saying this is a bunch of crap. I would hope. I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, at some point we have to make sense of the continuous and increasing large numbers of young people who are seeking out drugs mm -hmm. to protect their own emotions and to look at how the culture has shaped that. Right? We sit here at this podcast and we talk about the numbers. We talk about the extraordinary rise in young people taking psychiatric drugs. Mm -hmm. One of these is, is this is a consequence of a culture of fear. This is a consequence of fragility and communicating to people that their emotions are dangerous. Therefore, if somebody provokes an emotion, they are a victim of violence to that individual. So the more you communicate emotions to be dangerous, the more you're going to struggle with your own mental well-being. The world is not a safe place, right? Everything is going to be, there's so much that's going to be challenging. And so you ask the question, why do people feel unsafe? Because the world's unsafe. Everyone on, who walks this earth is going to die. There is, there is violence and there is sickness and there is trauma. And that is part of the human experience. There's no way around it. Now there's going to be large groups of people who are going to seek out financial gain and power through provoking fear in others. 
It is up to you as the individual be, to be able to develop a relationship with fear in your life that you're walking in a direction that you're creating that life of purpose and value. That's one of, in my opinion, the developmental milestones we all have to achieve in order to find peace and enlightenment in this world. We have to be able to develop a relationship to our own fear that allows us to experience what, we're, what we want to experience in this life and its temporary nature. To me, too many people fear the final outcome. You know, we're not a, we're not a culture of people who is comfortable talking about our, our own death. And we're not a culture of people that's, that's comfortable with talking about spirituality and how our life is limited and there should be purpose. We ha we're a culture of people that's trying to protect everything in the moment. And then you have news programs and you have industries that are going to try to profit off the provocation of that fear. So uh, to me, one of, the, one of at least my goals and purposes in life is to, is to learn and to, to have freedom in this time and to support that freedom. And that freedom provides you the opportunity to choose the life that you want to live for yourself and your family. So anything that interferes with that is something that I, I vehemently oppose. And I believe sound mental health is, is your willingness to develop the skills to be able to cope with, adapt, and overcome those episodes and those challenges that are inevitable. And not to view those experiences from a pathological lens, not to view them as something to be avoided or to be distracted, he's distracted from. It is really counterintuitive. You know? Fear, how do you deal with fear? You face it. You walk towards it. You be with it. And so anytime that there's a structure or, or an environment that talks to you about fear as something to be avoided, to escape from, and then that is relative safety. There is an ideology around that. There's an ideology behind that. And in it, they are either purposely or inadvertently fragilizing you. Mm -hmm. They are sending you very clear messages that you do not have the capacity to tolerate this. And therefore, I, in my position of power, will protect you from yourself and your own experience. Yeah, I was just going to say it comes down to that dependence on yourself versus that dependence on an authority figure or a government. You know, if this whole idea of safety is a micro, everything that we just talked about today, if you become so obsessed with that, you become risk averse, you become fearful, you don't want to think for yourself, you just want to be told exactly what to believe and I do think that there is some intent in having a massive amount of our society relying on entities, whether it be media, government, because it's just easier to control individuals that are in a state of fear, that they can't think for themselves. Yeah, you go back to the origins of what safe spaces were. It was for leadership, for businesses, allowing their employees to actually be critical of the work that they were doing. And, and that word criticize is what's now put into you know, what safe spaces are, but you're supposed to be criticized. You're supposed to hear the things that you're doing wrong. You're supposed to be doing the, hearing the things that could be offensive. Not that you have to agree with it, but to be conscious of it. And as an individual, it's your responsibility to either evolve or devolve. So, I mean, Roger, for the last two years, you've been very vocal through 
um, the safe space of social media, and I bet you've received a lot of criticism. Have you evolved? Have you adjusted your your stance, the way that you approach things in any way? It could be minor. I think I'm a lot better at articulating the message. Um, I do believe I have a thicker skin. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Um, I think when I first started putting myself out there at Twitter, and then you know you, you have these people who will make comments, and they're they're kind of really trying to destroy your character. Um, and you, when you initially do that, you're like wait a second, that's not my intention. You know, you almost feel like mm-hmm. you should defend yourself because you're being, you're being attacked. And then your evolution is acceptance where you accept that when you have ideas that are going to be outside of the mainstream narrative that you are going to, to take some bullets and you really kind of develop a little bit of a, of a thicker skin. You evolve to be able to articulate your argument in a way where they may be able to understand. You don't, I don't think I've changed the mission. No. You know, I don't think I've um, learned anything necessarily new that has shifted my perspective. In fact, more more than anything, I think it's becoming strengthened and, and reinforced. By the way, Elon Musk has gotten into this debate uh, that we're that we're supporting here on the, the podcast about the medicalization yeah. and overprescribing of of drugs in society. So he's gotten into this. Is I do feel like we. We have uh, we're, we're part of of a movement that about fragilizing and medicalizing the the human beings, and the, talking about the risks of that from education to government to culture, society to freedom to medical freedom, you know, and especially coming out of COVID nineteen, and and we saw all the nefarious attempts to try to institute, you know, control over one's own body. And there's going to be continued challenges for medical freedom. You know, these are around ideas that I think we we really hold dear and are willing to 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 fight for, and we're going to willing to fight for in, with the exchange of ideas. That's why I'm really interested in having this conversation with the psychiatrist next week. I'm not running away from this discussion. I'm running towards it. That's why I've gotten on Twitter. I've gotten on this microphone that I want to have the exchange of ideas. Now, I'm going to be open to this gentleman's ideas and try to defeat my own argument. I'm going to try to find out where there are holes in my argument. Where am I wrong? What am I missing? At the same time, I've put a lot of work into this. Right? I've got so much knowledge. Part of this podcast is to have conversations with other people. We've had some, we've had some conversations with either professionals or people harmed in the system and they certainly have influenced me mm-hmm. and they've influenced the, the direction that this podcast has taken. And I do have a responsibility to be able to, to you know, discuss the consequences and what has happened to the, harm, the prescribed harm community. But just generally speaking, when we're talking about psychiatric diagnosis or psychiatric drugs or the harms that it creates. Listen, if, if, there's, if this gentleman believes that in somehow, in some way, this has benefited American society, we're advancing mental health, please. I want to hear that argument. There's nothing about data or the direction that we're going that seems to support it, but sometimes there's nuance. And maybe there's going to there's be points of, of agreement, and maybe I can influence him. And I can only influence him if, if it's done in a respectful way. I know the, the listeners do not want to hear arguing. 
Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear people talk over other people. And so when we talk about advancement and evolution, it's learning to be able to uh, create that environment. So if we're going to have if we're going to have guests come on in, in the future who might have alternative viewpoints, they have to know that they have a safe space. <laughs> 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 but they they have to know that they haven't that they're going to be heard. Right. Well, it doesn't mean I'm going to agree. I'm going to come back. You know, I'm going to come back at 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 this gentleman, but with with ideas. I'm going to tar- try to articulate my my ideas. That's what being radically genuine is. I agree. How do we want to close this one up? Um, you know, one obviously that there is a libertarian bent to what I communicate. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. Okay, and. So I want to be open about that, but uh, that libertarian bent uh, to what I'm saying is what does liberal really mean? What does libertarian really mean? What does it mean to the two of you? I would say conservative, unlimited government interfering with your life, absolute freedom with minimal government intervention. And that means that you're very progressive when it comes to how people live their lives and their personal choices. Yeah. Socially progressive in terms of letting people do what they want to do with their lives as long as it's not infringing upon others. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I do agree. I mean, so the 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 liberal end of, of things around like socially liberal is um is supporting the individual right of everybody to live their life as they choose, mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of others. And that, and that I think the libertarian viewpoint understands historically how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there is a, I think, a more realistic and accepting view of human nature that humans, due to fear, Humans, due to their own desire for power, immortality, will seek out financial gain and power over groups of people. And that the only system that is ever going to really truly be successful is one that protects the rights of those groups and of the individual. So anything that infringes on those rights is an assault on one's own personal freedom. That includes laws around informed consent. That, infor- that includes when a medical authority or bureaucracy or group can spread messages or censor information that interferes with the individual's rights to choose medical interventions for their own body and their own family. And so this is where there's a slippery slope and we tie it in. When you look at American colleges, universities, the censoring of information, the fragilizing of people and the, and the creating of, a, of a, a structure or a hierarchy that, provoke, that promotes ideas over those of others, you know you're creating a divisiveness. And that ideology on that, uh, from that perspective, tends to support government interference. 
greater authoritarian and government control to manage other people. And I sometimes think that that ideology comes from a place of vulnerability within the individual, those who are more prone to, to fear. And that's why I think when we are going to be able to have discussions around these ideas, we have to be able to clearly articulate the consequences of that authoritarian, authoritarian control or at any point where there can be a censoring of, of information to protect others, right? This idea of protecting others from that information because it can be emotionally provocative is a slippery slope and that's where you do not get the information to make decisions for yourself or your family. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.